Hey church, my name is Annie Bayer and I'm going to read today's teaching text. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Okay, let's pray. Dear God, thank you for um, this text. Um, thank you for your word. And please help us to understand what you have for us today and to obey you fully. In your name I pray, amen. Hey, friends, as we begin this time of studying scripture and thinking big thoughts about God, I just want to commend you for setting aside this space to do just this. This is a season where it's really easy to be overcome with apathy. Uh, John Mulaney jokes, uh, like it's so much easier to do nothing than to do something. It's amazing that we do anything at all. Uh, I, I want to thank you and honor you for, for plugging in, for resisting apathy uh, today and, and carving out this space with your family or your friends or by yourself, or maybe you're listening to this later, uh, and, and thinking big thoughts about God and reflecting on Scripture. Uh, online church is great in so many ways, but it does not replace the incarnational experience of being with other believers. My hope is that in the coming weeks, we're going to be able to do just that. Uh, I'll give you updates on our building uh, later, but uh, for today, I just want to thank you. And I would pray that wherever you are, that God would bless you and encourage you and pour out his spirit on you, even while you're watching on your phone or your TV or your computer or you're listening as you drive about wherever you are. God bless you. Prophet Jeremiah said, stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths, ask where the good way is, and then walk in it, and you'll find rest for your souls. Over the last handful of weeks, I've been unpacking how this language of the ancient path is kind of narrating and structuring some of the ways that we're behaving and thinking together as a community of believers. Asking what is the ancient path? The ancient path is a tested and trustworthy manner of being in the world. It's a paradoxical pilgrimage. On the one hand, it's readily embracing a life of challenge and difficulty. It could even be, mean embracing the opportunity for suffering. And yet, it also leads to, to true and deep soul-level rest and flourishing and life. If you missed the first two introductory sermons uh, on the ancient path, I'd urge you to go back uh, and listen. Somebody said, uh, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Well, as we're considering beginning this journey down the ancient path, how do we start? Uh, where does the ancient path begin? Uh, when I was 16 years old, uh, I told you last week about my good buddy, Mimo Morielli, with whom I've done many foolish things. Uh, when I was 16, and Mimo was 16, we were, we were these really zealous kids, and Mimo especially, and he had a passion for global missions. And so Mimo decided that he was going to run from his house in Leonard, Oklahoma, to our church at 31st and Memorial. And Mimo got people to sponsor him as he ran, and because we were best friends, he said, John, you got to do this with me. And because my frontal cortex had not adequately developed, I decided to say yes to this journey. 
The total distance from Mimo's house to Woodlake, our home church, was just shy of a marathon. Neither of us had trained even a little bit, and neither of us thought that that was a really big issue before we decided to set out uh, on this journey. We just decided to go for it. So uh, the morning of, we decided to really carb up and eat a big pancake breakfast, and before dawn, we set out from Mimo's house. Uh, By the time we reached mile five, we felt like our calves were going to fall off. I mean, they were just burning and they were rock hard and every step was agony and we were basically just beginning the journey. As we continued, we we were cramping, we were grouchy, we were uncomfortable, we were in pain like we had never been in pain. And Mimo's parents were driving behind us in their car just laughing at us the whole way. Every step I'm thinking, why did I listen to Mimo and decide to do this? I was immediately regretting my poor life choices. Well, four hours later, we're at 61st and Memorial, and I have a commitment for school, and my mom has to come and pick me up. And for days, I walked around like an old man, like I needed a walker to get around. Now, you all know quite well what I did not know at the time that my decision uh, to do this run was was effectively doomed from the start. I wasn't ready for uh, the journey. I was ready for the first step, but I couldn't expect long-term success and endurance because I hadn't taken what you might call the step before the step. In the case of this long run, the step before the step was training was preparation. I mean, there's a reason people really put in the miles and work their way up if they're going to run a marathon or a half marathon or do anything like that that requires real physical endurance. The step before the step is counting the cost. It's recognizing what success and survival require and then doing those things. Because I hadn't taken the step before the step, the chances of catastrophe were strong very strong. What we could ask this question as we're exploring the ancient path, what's the step before the step? The thing that one must do in making a resolution to journey down the ancient path. The non-negotiable, unavoidable posture or perspective or action one must take to begin the journey and to begin the journey with hope of actually finishing it. That's what we're going to explore today. Now, Andy just read for us from Genesis chapter 1. As we open our Bibles to to page 1, we read this beautiful poetic rendering of God's creation of all that is. And it's magnificent. There's order, and yet there's wildness. There's this diversity. The earth is teeming with life. There's not sameness and control, homogeny. Uh, It's beautiful, and yet there's also this careful internal structure. As we read Genesis chapter 1, in days 1 through 3 of creation, we see God creating these environments, the universe, uh, the skies, the seas, and the lands. And then mirroring days 1 through 3, on days 4 through 6, God creates these new objects and entities, organisms to inhabit the spaces that God God invented. The sun and the moon and the stars, planets populate uh, the universe. Uh, The the flying birds fill the skies, the fish and the great creatures of the deep populate the seas. On the lands we have plant life and animal life and all of its diversity, grazing animals and, and hopping squirrels. But then at the apex of creation, on day six, 
just before God kicks up his feet to relax and relish in everything that he has made, God creates humanity in his image. Now, this passage at Genesis 1, 27 and 28 is commented on more by, by early church fathers than perhaps any other passage in the Old Testament. And there's mystery behind the language that's employed. Let us make mankind, humankind, in our image. Well, a careful reader is going to ask the question, well, who is us? Who is our? Did it refer to some kind of heavenly or divine council? Was it an early hint of the Holy Trinity that would be revealed through progressive revelation over time? Whatever the case, we see that more than any other element in creation, there was deliberation and delight in the uniqueness of humankind among all that God has made. God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, that they may rule over creation. And it says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. There's a repetition which is adding weight and significance and importance to it. Male and female, he created them. As we're beginning to discern the trailhead of the ancient path, one must address some fundamental questions about the meaning of life. As we're reading the origin story of all of creation, we ought to ask, what is the purpose behind existence? Or more directly, why were humans created? Now, a careful listener is going to note that embedded in the question is an assumption that there is a purpose. And there is a cause for which humanity exists. And coming to grips with that assumption, making peace with that assumption, and seeking the answers to those questions is the place where we must start as we are beginning our journey down the ancient path. The Genesis account gives us some really crucial information for discerning the road to wisdom or the road down the ancient path. First, one of the most important details in this passage is that God created humanity. That our creation was the highest expression of his power and creativity, which marks humankind among all that God has made as special and honored and beloved. We were created well. Uh, we were created, created gendered as men and women, something that God said was very good. We were created to rule creation under God's rule, somehow mysteriously bearing or reflecting his image to the rest of creation. Uh, Dallas Willard, who I hope many of you will go and read, uh, says, reminds us that God is the most joyous being in the universe. And out of God's overflowing joy, God's hilarious delight in having made something that he loves, God made humans to be like him in the world. Well, through all of this, uh, we learned that humanity was fearfully and wonderfully made. We learned that our being is contingent. That is, uh, we didn't make ourselves. We, didn't, we don't derive life from ourselves. We are not autonomous. All that is, is precisely because God wanted it to be. God, in the very act of creation, encoded meaning into the fabric of the universe. And God encoded meaning into our very DNA, into the fact of our existence. To respect 
and to accept and even to come to love this reality is the step before the step down the ancient path. The author of Proverbs said in Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Coming to a place where you respect that God is God, that God is the author, the creator of everything, and that we are not, is like the moment a person like me who has naturally really blurry vision puts on corrective lenses for the first time. It may be even a bit jarring at first. You may get headaches at first. But then you begin to see how off your worldview has been. The, the things of earth become strangely clear in those moments. Having come to respect or fear or have reverence for God as the author of existence, we also in humility accept that we can't rightly regard ourselves as the ultimate editors of our existence. Since existing wasn't our idea in the first place, we further recognize we can't rightly edit it to suit our fancy, to respect and to accept and to come to love this reality that God is God and we are not. This is all God's project is the step before the step down the ancient path. Augustine of Hippo said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Until we've come to a place of respecting, accepting, and embracing the origins and the designs behind our existence, until we find our sense of home and safety and identity in the world as one made by God and for God, our hearts are going to be in a perpetual state of restlessness. But the risks are actually much greater than, the, than just that. There's actually a darker and more destructive risk of failing to respect God as the owner and the author of existence. In his book, Playing God, uh, Andy Crouch demonstrates the startling historical connection between idolatry, which is putting anyone or anything in a position of honor or control other than God, the connection between idolatry and injustice. Did you know that at this time on planet Earth, there are more people in slavery than there have ever been in all of recorded history? All throughout the world, men and women and children are enslaved in all kinds of contexts. They're baking bricks, they're rolling cigarettes, or they're working in, in brothels. And the men and women who choose to enslave make themselves little gods and pervert and distort God's intent for those whom they have enslaved. Uh, persons who are made in the image of God. Idolatry or empowering yourself or someone else uh, other than God uh, is repurposes or alters God's intentions for humanity, and it always leads to some form of injustice. And God will not forever tolerate this kind of injustice. Uh, in Revelation uh, chapter 6, the Apostle John is given this vision of the day that, that Jesus, the Lamb of God, returns to earth and deals with the idolatry that leads to injustice. It says, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. 
For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Idolatry leads to injustice, and God cannot tolerate it to our relief forever. God is God, and we are not. Remember hearing uh, an author say once, this is a reality that you don't have to like, but you do have to deal with. And the scriptures teach us that dealing with it, accepting it, embracing it, submitting to it, and loving it is the beginning of the path to wisdom. It's the step before the step down the ancient path. Some of you will know the story of Job in the Old Testament. Job fits into a genre that we might call wisdom literature. And the story, which in my view is most likely a parable and not actually a story of a historical person, begins with Job being presented in almost hyperbolic fashion as the most blessed man on earth, and then he loses everything. Job is kind of taking the internal wisdom and logic of Proverbs, which says, if you do well, God will bless you, and turns it on its head to ask questions about the motivation for our behavior. Do we serve God only because he blesses us? Well, Job, having lost everything, gathers together with his friends, and for 40 chapters, Job and his friends muse and wonder and pontificate on the reasons behind Job's losses. And they seem to speak at times with great authority, uh, with, with an assumption of mastery over the mysteries of life. And God, having let Job and his friends you know, get it all out of their system, shows up and confronts them. God shows up and asks them some questions just to gauge whether they are really on level ground when it comes to teasing out the causes behind uh, this change in circumstances for Job. With piercing rhetoric, God says to them things like, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. God's using this like sarcastic voice. Or God asks them, Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? And Job, enduring three chapters of God, um, putting him in his place, asking him these questions that demonstrate the vast difference in their knowledge and wisdom, uh, Job, having been shown his lack of perspective, responds in a way that demonstrates wisdom. He says in response to God, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. He says to God, you said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Job in the moment realizes he, God is God and he is not and he accepts it. Well, in the story, God blesses Job's response. Now, his humility before the author of life marks a return to the path of wisdom. God blesses him as a result of it. Why do we exist? The Westminster Larger Catechism says it's to glorify God and fully enjoy him forever. The Catechism of the Anglican Church of North America asks this question. How does recognizing God as creator inform your understanding of his creation? And then it answers, I acknowledge that God created for his own glory everything that exists. 
He created human beings, male and female, in his image and appointed us stewards of creation. God's creation is thus a gift to enjoy as we work and care for it. So we begin this journey down the ancient path. We have to discern the meaning encoded by God into creation. For what purpose do we exist? Why do we exist? We exist because God was delighted to cause us to exist. Our being is very, is utterly contingent on him. Paul quotes uh, songwriters of his day saying, in him we live and move and have our being. We are derivative beings, contingent creatures. We exist because God was delighted to cause us to exist. Why do we exist? I mean, how are we created? We were created in his image. We were created according to our gender. We exist to know him and to love him and to honor him and to rule over creation as God lovingly rules over us. What are some of the implications of beginning to really let your imagination run wild with these bedrock principles for the Christian way? What are some implications of this? Well, I want to share with you five today to consider. What are the implications of accepting that God is God and we are not, that we are living in God's world? Well, first, it's worship. What response does it invite? It invites a response of worship. Worship is, for us, the highest and purest expression of accepting the fundamental reality of who God is and who we are. In worship, we move to a place not just of acceptance, but a place of delight in God and willful submission to God. We're instructed to worship God in lots of ways in Scripture. Uh, to sing, to shout, to kneel, to raise our hands, to clap our hands. We're also instructed in a more like, like big picture kind of way to consciously live in a way that honors God, that desires to honor God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's Colossians 3.23. We're meant to, to worship God as a, a willful expression of delight and submission to him because he is God and we are not. It's the appropriate response, the grateful response of derivative beings who, who acknowledge and praise and delight in the one who made us. So a question we might each consider is, are we giving God the honor and the glory and the worship that he's due? And if not, what, what is holding us back? The second thing that, that this conversation evokes of us, the first being worship, the second is justice. If idolatry leads to injustice, then, then true worship leads to the work of justice or even ethics. In Isaiah 58, we find this excoriating uh, like call to a different kind of repentance and fasting by God. Uh, the prophet Isaiah says, do you think the kind of fasting God wants is just for you to emaciate yourself and to sing pretty songs? He says, no, God says the kind of fasting and worship he wants leads a person to set the prisoners free, to forgive debts, and to extend mercy. If idolatry leads to injustice, true worship leads to ethics and to justice. 
in view of the reality that God is the Lord and creator of all, an appropriate response is to live as those who will be called to give an account for how we've stewarded the degree of authority God has given us, how we've ruled over our little part of creation as he rules over us. We're empowered to rule over the world, yes, but to rule it under his authority. A question that each of us could consider is, in our little sphere of the universe, in our little corner of the cosmos, in what ways are we withholding justice or upholding injustices? In what ways, which we excuse because of the culture we live in or because of the industry that we work in, in what ways are we compromising our ethics? In what ways do our ethics, our our choices, our morality reflect or fail to reflect the fact that God is God and we are not, that we are ruling the world but under his authority? How is God inviting you to uh, deal justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him? The first response that the reality of God's authorship over creation invites of us is worship. The second is justice. The third is is quite obvious in the text, and it's creation care. God made the earth, and one day he's going to come to renew the earth, and he expects us to take care of it in the middle of it. When I was a college student at ORU, uh, I stumbled upon Psalm 24. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. And I memorized the whole psalm. I kept it on an index card in my pocket as I walked about campus and saw like the, the pretty greenery. And as I worked at Office Depot Store 359 on Lewis at night, I had this verse in my mind. My, my imagination began to run wild with what are the implications of the earth being the Lord's and everything that's in it, the world and those who live in it began to develop an appetite for like, like caring for the earth. And so you notice trash right there. And so even with my kids now, we pick up trash, I ask the question, hey, why do we do that? And there are my little children, God bless them, will say the earth is the Lord's. It is an appropriate response of one who acknowledges God as the author of existence to care for the world that God made. Creation care was not invented by people who live in Vermont or Portland. Uh, it's, the, it's the appropriate response of people who acknowledge who made the earth, who it belongs to. If you come over to my house and you trash the place, I'm not going to be super pleased with that. Uh, if you borrow somebody's truck and you bring it back in way worse condition, they're definitely going to notice. It's the call of everyone made in the image of God to rule over the world as God rules over us. It's simple, like we're just meant to care for our part of creation, to be mindful of how we're contributing to caring for the thing that God made. The question to consider is, in what ways can you do your part to to care for God's creation? And those of you who may rush to defensiveness as if this is a political thing, let your guard down. This is a Christian thing. This is an image-bearing kind of thing. Recognizing that God is God and we are not evokes worship of us. It evokes justice and ethics of us. It invites us to join God in creation care. Perhaps a more personal way in in which it evokes a response has to do with our own self-concept. One of the most saddening ways we see that creation has fallen from God's intent because of sin and our rebellion shows up in the way that we think about ourselves. The, the, the soundtrack of self-criticism and shame that goes on in each of our minds or many of our minds. 
Some of us are so very hard on ourselves or confused about ourselves. But to fear God and to begin to accept God's reality can actually mean really good news in how we think about ourselves. How does adequately appreciating that God is God and the author of life and therefore he's encoded meaning into our being help us? Uh, Well, it, it tells us that there's some things that are true of us. It tells us that no matter your conception story or how you came into the world, you are not a mistake. You're on purpose as far as God is concerned. Your biological gender was not a mistake. You were lovingly made by God. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He is delighted in you. Your body is a gift from him. He underscores this point even further by proclaiming that your body, accepting faith in Jesus, is made a temple of the Holy Spirit, like the tabernacle, a place where God dwells. Accept this with humility and with gratitude. Be kind to yourself. And like all of creation, care for the body that God's given you, but know all the while that it's not shamed. You're you're loved intrinsically. Don't insult your maker by believing otherwise. Recognizing that God is God and we are not accepting and embracing this reality evokes worship of us. It evokes justice and ethics. It evokes creation care. It transforms the way that we conceive ourselves. And the final and and critical implication of accepting, accepting these realities has to do with our posture before God as people. Because we were created, because we are not God, Because we are finite, our posture ought to be one of true humility and teachability and deference, respect, homage, whatever you want to say. And pride and defensiveness and a haughty spirit are like the kryptonite of wisdom, and they bar us from taking the first steps down the ancient path. But for the one who who can authentically say, God, you are God and I am not, You alone know what is right and good and pure and just. You show us true north, and apart from you, I'm perpetually wandering south. A person who really, in the core of their being, gets this and submits to this, and perhaps even against their own instincts, like embraces this, is a person who's learning to take the first steps down the ancient path. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. The psalm goes on to say, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord and who can stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. I think as we talk about God's creational intent, we can't talk about it without recognizing how catastrophically we've failed as human beings how magnificently and terribly, terrifyingly we've rebelled against the Lord. You can't hear this whole conversation without noticing the difference between how we are and how we ought to be. Ephesians 2, in a very meta sense, talks about creation apart from God and says all of us uh, were, were dead in our sins and by nature deserving of wrath. Well, what's God's posture toward creation like this? Does he want to rub our face in it and shame us? No, it says... But because of his great love for us, 
God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even while we were dead in our sins. It's by grace you have been saved. As we talk about wisdom, we're aware of our own folly. As we talk about right, we're aware of how in the wrong we are. As we talk about humility, we're aware of our pride. But don't think that God is up here just like shaming us for it. Don't think that God is up here wanting to put us in our place just so we like feel icky. In the person of Jesus Christ, the perfect image of God, the very image of God, like the, uh, it says in Colossians, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus, the image of God, shows us what God's posture toward us is like, and it's a posture of complete mercy. God doesn't want anyone to perish. God doesn't want anyone to be deformed by our rebellion, but is patiently waiting for all, all of us to take these first steps down the ancient path to recognize how deeply we need him, how, how badly we become uh, malformed, mal, like misshapen as a result of our rebellion. God is rich in mercy and kindness toward you, and his intention is that his kindness would lead to our repentance. Jesus tells the story of the, of, the, of the prodigal son who wanders away and blows everything and he's practicing his I'm sorry speech as he begins to make his way back home. And the scripture says the father, while his son was still a long way off, saw him, his heart was full of compassion and ran to him and embraced him and honored him. And no matter the brokenness, the confusion, the folly that you're in the middle of, that I'm in the middle of, it is the heart of God to welcome us home, to reshape us, to renew us, to remake us, to teach us wisdom, to hold our hand as we begin to take these steps down the ancient path. But it begins with the recognition of who he is and who we are. God is God and we are not. He is the author and we must not allow ourselves to think we can be the editors. This is his reality and wisdom the voice of wisdom cries out in the streets to invite us to accept it and embrace it and come to love it that evokes of us this response of worship of justice of joining God in creating and caring for the world that he made it transforms the way that we think about ourselves and it keeps us nimble and like, like rich turned soil ready to receive in this uh, perpetual posture of openness and hunger for every word that comes from the mouth of God. But here, friends, today that the invitation of Jesus to be made new, the lack of shame in his voice, the delight in his face to say, come and learn from me for I'm humble and gentle in spirit and with me, in me you'll find rest for your soul. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, there are so many ways in which we're just really confused about life. And perhaps more so now than in any other time in history. There's a cacophony of voices uh, fighting for our attention. And we don't know who to listen to. And there's a part of us that's just tempted to withdraw and to just risk nothing and, and, and uh, believe nothing. To just let apathy run its course. Pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us the grace to believe and to accept that we are your creatures, that humanity is your project, that creation is yours, that you have not and will not forever abandon. And Jesus, would you just pour out your spirit on our church? Would you help us be people who like really get it, who get it together, 
not like get ourselves together, but like we get it as a community and we submit to you and we fear you. Like we don't fear anyone by comparison. We fear you and revere your name. So we pray in the Lord's Prayer, may your name be hallowed and honored. And may that put us in our place. So many ways in which we've blown it, so many ways in which we're off course, Lord Jesus. But would you gracefully and mercifully and yet also like radically invite us to align with the plumb line. Invite us to, to go back to true north and quit wandering south. We need your help, Jesus, and we're asking you to do what we cannot do for ourselves. Send your spirit in our houses and in our church community and in the city of Tulsa and in the church of Jesus Christ all around the world. We love you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Friends, wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, have a great day. Have a great week wherever you are. God loves you. And hopefully we'll see you in person soon. Bye.